Welcome to Thomson Reuters Down the Hall with Practical Law, the show that provides practical insights and expert know-how on trending legal issues. No legalese, just expertise. With your host, Renee Karibi-White. Hi, and welcome to the first 2017 episode of Down the Hall with Practical Law. I'm your host, Renee Karibi-White, and today we are going to talk about initial public offerings, otherwise known as IPOs. Our resident expert here at Practical Law, Chris Rohrig, is going to provide a look back at what happened in 2016 and provide some insight on what might happen in 2017, given the political and economic climate. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Renee. So Chris is a senior legal editor here at the Practical Law Capital Markets Group. And he came to us after having years of experience in capital markets and M&A with Sherman and Sterling and at Tories. So Chris, our audience is lawyers of all different kinds. So to level the playing field for those in our audience who don't specialize in capital markets, can you explain a little bit about what IPOs are? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Uh, Really, you know, just starting at the beginning, you know, we really have to look back at the purpose of securities laws, which... You know, the primary purpose is to create confidence in the capital markets for investors and to ensure that there's no perception of widespread fraud. And so this applies to all securities laws and in particular to the securities laws applicable to IPOs. And so I think, uh, you know, a great question to start with is, you know, what is an IPO for those of our listeners who don't know what an IPO is? And really what an IPO is, is the first registered offering of a company's common equity. So the question becomes, you know, what, what does that mean? And really under the U.S. securities laws, uh, anytime any person, be they an issuer or someone holding securities, offers or sells securities, they either have to register that offering or sale with the SEC, or there has to be an available exemption from these registration requirements. And by registering, that means they end up on a stock exchange, correct? Well, uh, no, not exactly. What registration is, is you're basically filing uh, what's known as a registration statement with the SEC. The majority of a registration statement is what's called a prospectus, which I think you know most people would be familiar with. And basically, it's a disclosure document that uh, discloses all of the details of the issuer and the offering to the public. And the SEC has a series of registration forms available to issuers, and they're very detailed in terms of what the uh, issuer has to provide. And most of the information relates to, you know, there there are two sets of information. One is the non-financial information. So this relates to the nature of the business, the management of the company, related party transactions, and things like that. And then the rest of the disclosure are the financial statements. And this is what a lot of uh, investors really look at because that, at the end of the day, determines the profitability of the company. And you're you're looking at the financials to make a decision as to whether this is going to be a profitable investment or not. So just to clear up a little bit, because IPO is initial public offering. That's correct? right. So the registration statement applies to all organizations that are doing that registration? Or is it like if it's going to be a closely held corporation where it might not be public, do they still have to go through the same steps? Yeah, closely held corporations are just entities where someone or or a group of people own either a majority or a substantial stake of the company and thereby have a an outsized control over the company and that can happen in an IPO uh, you know recently a number of tech companies in particular have issued what are called dual class share structures and that's where the founders of the company basically keep one share structure where uh, one share has more than one vote but the uh, investing public receives a class of shares 
that only has one vote per share. And so this gives the founders and you know, continued control over the company, but diffuses the economic uh, rights in the company to the public. And it's created a lot of, of uh, controversy and discussion. Most recently, uh, Snap, a technology okay. company, is thinking about going public, and they're thinking about offering a class of shares that do not have any voting rights. And that would be a very interesting step. And it's creating a lot of controversy, a lot of uh, asset managers and a lot of corporate governance specialists are questioning whether this is something that's good for the market. And it's really one of the things that are, it's going to affect the IPO market in 2017 because tech companies have really been a great source for IPOs. There was a, obviously a gap during the tech bubble or, or after the tech bubble, but in the late 1990s and more recently, tech companies have uh, really been uh, conducting a lot of IPOs, uh, companies like uh, Google, Facebook, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, and they really like that structure uh, because their founders can keep an, a control over the company. But the investing public obviously only gets a set of rights that are different from other companies. So are there no regulations that limit the ability to give out no, shares that don't have any voting rights? No, this is really, uh, this is primarily something that's state corporate law okay. driven. And at the end of the day, what... You know, when, when someone buys a security, such as a share in a company, what you're really buying is a bundle of rights. And this is just sort of basic property law. And that's how, you know, in theory, the idea is, is that you value those rights. And so, for example, when you buy any security, be it a share, a preferred share, or a debt security, what you're receiving are the rights that are included in the document that governs those. So typically, when you buy common shares are the, are the most basic type of securities, typically. And what you usually buy with that purchase of that, you buy the right to one vote per share, and then you buy certain economic rights in the company. Okay. And But we live in sophisticated times, and the capital markets in particular become very sophisticated. So now you have a whole spectrum of securities ranging from the very simple one vote per one share common equity all the way to sort of hybrid securities, preferred stock that sometimes has voting rights, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it only has voting rights in certain instances, sometimes it doesn't. All the way to debt securities where you typically don't have voting rights except as provided in the indenture. And so in certain instances, even debt security holders can receive voting rights when the company does something material to its uh, existence or something economically material. So that brings me to our next question. It sounds like there are a lot of creative ways to structure these. Is that the role that lawyers play? And if not, what role do lawyers play in IPOs? Yeah, I, I, that's a great question. Uh, lawyers play a very important role in the IPO process. And the form that that really takes is uh, structuring the transaction within the confines of the law. They really tell issuers and the underwriters, the bankers advising the issuer in the IPO process, how the IPO can be completed within the regulatory framework. And this framework, uh, it's a shifting framework depending on the nature of the issuer and the nature of the transaction. So, for example, foreign private issuers, companies that uh, meet the definition of foreign private issuer, are subject to less onerous requirements than U.S. domestic issuers. And the policy reasons behind that is, that the, is to encourage foreign companies to enter the U.S. capital markets and raise capital in the United States. For U.S. domestic issuers, there is a whole spectrum of levels of company based on the size of the company, uh, et cetera. For example, in 2012, President Obama enacted the JOBS Act, which created a new class of issuers called emerging growth companies, otherwise known as EGCs. And basically, this new class of companies is subject to less onerous requirements as well. They have a number of advantages that they can uh, use that makes it easier to access the capital markets. And EGCs are typically smaller companies 
because there's an, a lot of discussion in the United States currently that the level of regulation has discouraged small smaller companies from going public because unlike the late 1990s when you had an IPO boom of a lot of companies, including a lot of smaller companies, particularly in the tech industry, going public, uh, since then a number of uh, additional regulations have been enacted, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, Dodd-Frank, etc., that have imposed a number of additional burdens on companies, on public companies in particular. And the problem with this is that typically the costs of complying with these additional regulations are not really scaled based on the size of the company. So there's an undue amount of burden placed on smaller public companies vis-a-vis much, much larger companies. And so in many cases, this has discouraged smaller companies from going public. And in the past, smaller companies were really sort of the lifeline of the IPO process. And really, the IPO process is designed in many ways to facilitate smaller companies to raise capital. So obviously, we have to find an equilibrium between providing sufficient regulation to satisfy one of the primary purposes of the U.S. securities laws, which I mentioned in the beginning was creating confidence in the capital markets, and at the same time, not imposing so many regulatory burdens that it becomes too costly or too difficult for companies, and in particular, smaller companies, to become public companies. So... Based on what you said, it sounds like we're going to have some really interesting things to talk about when we talk about what's going to happen in 2017. Yes, that's true. But before we get there, let's get to the meat of the discussion. Practical Law recently published the What's Market Roundup of IPOs in 2016. What trends did your team discover? Yeah, we found uh, a number of interesting trends, trends that have actually been continuing in the recent past and basically since the 1990s. Some of the highlights from this roundup are that basically 2016 was a fairly lackluster year in the IPO market. There were approximately 102 IPOs by U.S. domestic issuers and foreign private issuers, raising approximately $16.6 billion. Now, uh, both of these totals were down from 2015, where there were 153 IPOs that raised $23.9 billion. But that was also a lackluster year because 2014 uh, had 254 IPOs that raised $73.3 billion. So that's a pretty dramatic drop-off in the last three years. But that's, you know, that's part of a long-term trend that's been continuing since the late 1990s. So it sounds like it's about from 2014 to 2015. 2015 had about a third of the number of deals. And then from 2016 to 2014, it seems like it dropped. So the first set of years, it dropped two-thirds, and then next year, it almost dropped by another third. Yeah, the, the drop-off between 2014 and 2015 wasn't that dramatic, but okay. well, in terms of the amount of money raised, uh, the number of IPOs uh, wasn't that large of a drop-off. And that's actually indicative that smaller companies were actually doing a lot more IPOs, which in a way is a good thing. But really, at the end of the day, you know, one of the primary measurements of the health of the IPO market is the average deal size. And uh, that has basically dropped between 2014 from $288.7 million dollars to $163.6 million. You know, this could be representative of of a number of facts. It could mean that more smaller companies are going public, or it could mean that larger companies are only IPOing a smaller slice of their capital, of their common equity. Uh, You know, when a company goes goes public, they don't necessarily sell all of their common equity in the IPO. They can sell as little as 5% or even less, depending on whatever the market wants. And the, um, the founders or whoever controls the company at the time keep their controlling stake. So do you think the JOBS Act had a positive influence on the number 
of deals? Well, it's hard to say. There are, there are a number of factors that come into play when determining you know, the health of the IPO market. Uh, in theory, the JOBS Act helped the IPO market, but it's difficult to tell. Obviously, there's still a downward trend, but because there are so many other factors affecting the market, it's really sort of a relative analysis that can only be done in theory. And the question is, you know, how many IPOs would there have been without the JOBS Act? And so if there were fewer IPOs today, then obviously the JOBS Act would have helped the market. But if there were less, then it really wouldn't have had any effect. But that's a theoretical question because we don't know what the answer to that would be. So can we tell based on the number of companies that filed under the EGC status whether the JOBS Act had an impact on the number of filings? Yes, Renee, that's actually a great question. Uh, and again, it's a theoretical question. I don't have the specific number, but I know that uh, a majority of companies conducting IPOs are EGCs. Um, but I do have specific statistics relating to the number of companies, uh, the number of EGCs that are taking advantage of one of the requirements, that being that a company only provide two years of audited financial statements as opposed to three. And in 2016, uh, 76.7% of uh, EGCs that conducted IPOs uh, included two years of audited financial statements. However, 22.1% chose not to take advantage of this accommodation and instead included three years of audited financial statements. And that's to ensure that they're marketable and that, that the investors have the information they need. That's right. Uh, you know, again, one of the interesting things about conducting an IPO is it's there's a dynamic between the legal requirements and then the market requirements. So the legal requirements are obviously the bare minimum that, a, that an issuer has to satisfy. But in uh, many instances, depending on the state of the market or the industry that the issuer is in, among other factors, a company's underwriters may come to them and say that we actually have to uh, go above and beyond what the minimum legal requirements are. And so in, in these instances, companies may produce uh, three years of audited financial statements for various reasons, one being that investors may demand this, two being that other companies in that company's industry provided three years of financial statements, or even you might want to provide three years of audited financial statements because the third year was a great year and it just makes the company look better and more marketable. Okay. So when we're looking back at 2016, were there any IPOs that blazed new trails in terms of how they were structured or anything that might be a harbinger of something to come in 2017? Uh, well, you know, we discussed this briefly before, but the dual class okay. structure is one of the primary topics right now. And this this is a uh, a topic that cuts across various different areas of the law, and not just securities law, but corporate law, property law, et cetera. And there, there are a number of like uh, even broader overarching social dimensions to this as well. Uh, you know, the question of, you know, one share, one vote, it has all sorts of democratic uh, principles involved in it, et cetera. And there are overarching questions that a number of people are asking about what will happen to the capital markets as the investing public's ability to vote and thereby influence public companies is reduced. Uh, you know, what effect that will have on not just the capital markets, but society as a whole. And, uh, you know, I know a number of tech companies that have implemented dual class share companies have included sunset provisions for those dual class share structures and that eventually they'll just go away. So what goes away? The lack of ability to vote? Well, the number of, um, I don't know the exact specifics, but it's basically the number of votes that the class of shares that have more votes per share will either, I think it'll either fall away or, or be slowly reduced. And this is really- To an, equalize the playing That's field. right. Eventually, okay. I think the idea is that they will be one to one. But, but again, you know, it'll be interesting to see again, Snap, which recently announced its plans to go public, they'll be offering a class of shares that don't have any votes per share. And so that's, that's a much different step. You know, obviously there's, 
there's a sliding scale here, but at least a reduced number of votes, you have some sort of vote in the company, even if it is less than 50%. But no votes is a very different type of uh, share. And in many ways, it's part of this the spectrum of securities in that it's, it's in many ways, it's almost like a preferred share because uh, you're just getting economic rights. But the thing is with most preferred shares is that they have an almost debt-like element to them in which they pay out a regular amount, like a regular dividend. So you're almost guaranteed Well, it's, it, some of them are guaranteed, but most of them aren't. So that's the prim- one of the primary differences between a preferred share and a debt instrument. Whereas in a, a debt instrument, you're guaranteed, subject to the company's ability to pay it, you're guaranteed an amount. Preferred shares, you know, many of them are just like a dividend and the company can reduce it or stop it at any time. And again, it depends on the, uh, what's in the instrument governing the preferred shares. But many preferred shares don't have voting rights or they only have voting rights in certain instances. And that's why they sit in this sort of hybrid position between common equity and debt instruments. Uh, and then so, you know, common equity that doesn't have any voting rights and just has economic rights, rights to a, to a dividend or, or rights upon a liquidation event, you know, you're sort of sliding more towards almost the preferred share instrument rather than more traditional common equity. So outside of the large organizations like CalPERS and those big kind of, I'm going to call them institutional sure. investors because I'm not, I'm probably not using the phrase no, that's properly. Fine. Yeah. Does the common person vote? Like what percentage of kind of mom and pop shareholders actually vote? Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's an interesting question. It's a real sort of corporate governance question that's been asked recently. I don't have any specific statistics as to how many uh, people actually vote at a company's annual meeting or in special meetings. But it's a major issue because uh, these institutional shareholders that you mentioned, which include not just CalPERS, et cetera, which are actually some of the more active institutional investors. Many of them sort of are at the forefront of limiting executive compensation, uh, arguing against dual class share structures, et cetera, or even uh, social investing tactics. For instance, a number of institutional investors, they no longer invest in certain industries such as oil or tobacco tobacco or things like that. Whereas on the other side, you have a different set of institutional investors, you know, the Black Rocks, the vanguards of the world, these asset managers that in this day and age with the rise of things like ETFs and mutual funds, they control vast sums of money. Um, The problem that has arisen in, in the last decade or so is that many of these institutional investors don't want to get involved with the corporate governance of the company. They generally vote with management. The, the NYSE, a couple of years ago, even uh, changed their voting rules to reflect this. And, uh, you know, it's a major issue because I think a lot of, you know, retail investors, otherwise known as mom and pop investors, I think a lot of them feel with these very large companies that their votes don't really matter, that they're such a tiny, you know, individually such a tiny percentage of the company that they don't vote, I'm sure. Even then, a lot of them own their shares indirectly through mutual funds and ETFs. So they don't even have the right to vote. It's the ETF, the asset manager that runs the ETF, or the the mutual fund, or a hedge fund, or any type of investment pool that has the right to vote. So there are really these sort of stages of investing. You know, originally in the 19th century, you had, you know, companies that were owned by their founders and their operators, and they were directly involved. And so you didn't have an, you know, a principal agency problem. But then with the uh, invention of the public company, shares were sold directly to the investing public. But again, uh, people own shares directly in companies. And so they were much more involved, you know, and the market was smaller. And I think people felt like they had a bigger influence on the company. Um, but we've entered the next stage of investing where the ultimate investor is one step removed from the actual ownership through ETFs and hedge funds and mutual funds, et cetera. And so they don't even really have the right to vote. Instead, it's these pooled 
investment companies, uh, that the asset managers that have the right to vote. Uh, now, obviously, the ultimate investors can vote with respect sometimes, you know, with, in, in mutual funds, et cetera. They can vote in that situation, but that's only with respect to the mutual fund itself. So the shares that are being voted in the public companies are actually being voted by the asset managers. And so you have this uh, increasing principal agency problem and it, with each layer of investment decision that's being inserted between the actual company and then the ultimate investors, where the money is. So it's an interesting question and a sort of philosophical question and a corporate governance question, but it's one that's at the forefront of a, a lot of people at the moment. So. so let's move more deeply into your 2017 outlook. To put it mildly, we're entering into a new era, given the significant philosophical change we as a country are going through. Are we entering uncharted territory with respect to IPOs? Like, What impact will the new administration and the direction it seems to be going have on IPOs? At this moment, it's hard to tell. You know, I think, uh, again, there's a balance between, I think, certain people in the investment community are enthusiastic and excited about what the new administration is going to do for business in general. Obviously, the new administration was has indicated that it's, you know, a very pro-business administration. Uh, now, whether that's actually going to play out in the markets and increase, you know, the value of the stock market, et cetera, is, is another question. But at the same time, uh, there are going to be a lot of changes, and that creates a lot of uncertainty. And the market doesn't like uncertainty. That's the one thing it doesn't like. So, you know, there's sort of this counterbalance here of what's going to happen. And, you know, like all trends and forecasting, you know, you can only take what you have at the moment and look forward. But, you know, I think in addition to the, to the regulatory landscape, you're always going to have the overarching market landscape, you know, what's happening with respect to markets, et cetera. We obviously live in very interesting times. And so the question is, you know, on the regulatory side, what is the new administration going to do? And, you know, getting back to what we, we discussed earlier, obviously, things like the Jobs Act and the FAST Act, which was a, another act that was implemented in, uh, in 2015, that was also designed to decrease the burdens on companies going public. They were implemented, but we still see a continued trend downward in the number of IPOs and the, the amount of money raised in those IPOs. Now, what you could have is this could have also created a, a gigantic backlog of companies that want to go public but have just been waiting for the right, uh, perhaps, regulatory conditions and or market conditions. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens, that if the, the new administration does, in fact, eliminate or reduce a number of the regulations in the IPO market, you know, what effect will that will have on the market and whether more companies will go public and whether more capital will be raised in the IPO process. So one of the things that seems to be clear about this current administration is that there are some protectionist tendencies. And you did mention that there were several foreign private issuers that mm -hmm. did IPOs. Will that protectionism have an impact on the IPO market? I just don't know the connection between the two. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. And again, it's sort of it's a difficult question to answer, but it's a very important question. And you know, it's foreign private issuers play a very large role in the U.S. capital markets. Uh, you know, the U.S. capital markets are the largest and most liquid in the world. And I think, to a certain extent, in many areas of the world, they're still considered the gold standard of in the regulatory sphere, at least. Uh, there's an idea that the U.S. securities laws are the most onerous in the world. And therefore, if a company can satisfy those requirements, it creates a sort of gold standard. Now, not everyone agrees with that. But I know that in my practice in particular, I there is a, a very strong focus on foreign private issuers. So I'm quite familiar with this area. But, you know, in addition to the sort of, you know, I don't know what, what effect the protectionist stance is going to have on the capital markets and the IPO market in particular. It could have the effect of discouraging 
some foreign companies from wanting to access the market and thereby be subjected to all of the different regulations that a company that's a registered company in the United States is subject to. Examples are the the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, Mm -hmm. uh, which is very strict. Things like that. Like a lot of foreign companies, and I I advise a number of foreign private issuers that were conducting IPOs in the United States, you really had to sit them down and, and make sure that they were comfortable with subjecting themselves to the whole spectrum of U.S. regulatory law, you know, in addition to the securities laws, uh, and just to make sure that they were comfortable with the ongoing reporting requirements, et cetera. But, you know, I think in a, in a general, in a non-regulatory sense, I think the foreign market is also having a large influence on the U.S. So I think one of the reasons that uh, the number of IPOs in the United States has been decreasing is the increasing attractiveness of foreign stock markets. So, for example, a lot of Chinese companies now are choosing to list in their home market, be it Shanghai or Shenzhen or even in Hong Kong. And uh, a lot of these stock markets are now looking, they're being seen as, as an alternative to the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ or other U.S. stock exchanges, whereas maybe 10, 15 years ago, that might not have been true. And as the number of foreign companies uh, list in their home markets or even choose to list in a market other than their home market, they choose not to list in the United States, but somewhere like London, for example, which has a very large capital market as well. Do those other jurisdictions have lighter requirements well, generally? you know, I think it depends on how you look at it. I think the general idea, and this is obviously from a U.S.-centric standpoint, is that the, the U.S. regulatory regime is, is the strictest. Whether that's true or not is, you know, a matter of opinion. Uh, but, you know, the U.S., does impose a number of laws. I do know from my experience that when you sit down and you explain to foreign companies all of the different requirements of being a, a public company in the United States, uh, many of them are quite surprised at the uh, the burden, even even when they're already public companies in their home jurisdiction. And you know, and again, it's it's a trade off, right? You know, uh, it goes back to confidence in the markets versus applying too many regulations to public companies that thereby discouraging them from becoming public. And so it's a balance you have to achieve and. Uh, as you can see with the Jobs Act, the FAST Act, and then potentially with whatever the new administration does, uh, it could be seen that maybe the U.S. went a little bit too far after the uh, scandals of the early 2000s and the implementation of Sarbanes-Oxley. And, you know, perhaps the regulations became too onerous or too costly. And it's all about finding a balance. And that balance is constantly moving based on market demands. And so, you know, it could be that they didn't go too far in the early 2000s. Maybe that was right for that time. But the state of the market requires maybe a lighter regulatory touch now, perhaps. There's an argument to be made on both sides. So So looking on the horizon for 2017, are there any, you mentioned Snap. Mm -hmm. Are there any other big IPOs or are there industries that we think might make a huge impact this year? Yeah, you know, there are are a number of large IPOs moving through the process at the moment. And it's also because one of the uh, new items that was introduced under the Jobs Act was the ability for uh, emerging growth companies to submit their initial registration statements confidentially to the SEC. And, and foreign private issuers, many foreign private issuers, also have that ability to submit a confidential registration statement to the SEC. Uh, we, we don't know uh, necessarily. And the purpose of that is so that they can get an opinion before they do That's the formal right. filing? Uh, what happens is generally uh, you have two situations, you know, sort of two theories underlying this. For EGCs, uh, they're smaller companies that don't necessarily have the resource of much larger companies. They don't have you know, huge in-house legal departments. They've never been a public company, so they're not familiar with what's required. And usually that's the job of their underwriters and their lawyers to advise them. But in a number of instances, they don't necessarily know what they're 
supposed to include in the registration statement if they're perhaps a very unique company or they have a unique set of financial statements. You know, in many instances, you would have smaller companies file their initial registration statement with the SEC, uh, and then the SEC would respond with many, many comments, some of which were sometimes embarrassing, uh, sometimes just a little burdensome. And the, the problem with the SEC registration process, which for those of our listeners that don't know, a company files an initial registration statement. The SEC will review it, provide comments. The issuer will revise the registration statement and respond to the SEC's comments, both through the revised registration statement and through a comment letter where they answer, they directly address each of the SEC's concerns. The SEC will review the revised registration statement, provide additional comments. So they're doing this anyway. Yes, but when you have a confidential process, all of that is confidential initially. So the market doesn't see this. So they just end up seeing what would be effectively the second round once the more uh, embarrassing well, things might be cleared No, up. Uh, in the confidential submission process, uh, a number of rounds can be confidential. And when the filing is not confidential, the registration statement itself is seen, it's available to the public immediately upon filing. Anyone can see it. And in many instances, that's how the market is notified that a company is doing an IPO, that you know, that suddenly a registration statement appears for a new company that's not public. But the comment letter process is also made public, but that's made public at a later date. Uh, the SEC uh, usually, at some point after the IPO process is, is finished, just releases all of the comment letters, and they just appear on the company's SEC page. Um, but, you know, just the, um, the revisions that are, are visible in each round of registration statements, sometimes it can be a little difficult, a little drawn out, and sometimes embarrassing for the issuer or the underwriters and, and their counsel. So the confidential submission process, both for EGCs and foreign private issuers, allows companies to work through some of the initial items prior to you know, releasing it to the market. And eventually, all of their filings will be released to the market, but it just creates a more discreet process. And you know, for foreign private issuers, uh, one of the issues that, they, that often arises for them, if they're, if they're public in a foreign country where they're required to make filings and they're making filings in the United States, there's a very large burden to make sure that there's no inconsistent disclosure or more so, or selective disclosure. Sometimes in the United States, additional disclosure will be required that's not required in their home jurisdiction where they're making disclosure. And so that can create selective disclosure issues. So how do we find out who's going to be filing this year based on that process? Are there any clues we can get? Well, you know, there, there are always rumors in the market, et cetera, you know, in the Wall Street Journal, et cetera. But eventually... Companies are required to make a public filing okay. of the registration statement before actually marketing the IPO. For example, for, for EGCs, they have to make a public filing of the registration statement at least 15 days prior to uh, beginning the roadshow, which is the marketing process. And that, that in itself is a reduced regulatory burden. Initially, under the Jobs Act, it was 21 days, but the FAST Act reduced that to 15 days. So again, it makes it a little bit easier for everyone, and it's all designed to facilitate the process. But again, this is the competing interest in the securities laws that regulators obviously want to make it easier for companies to go public. But at the same time, they want to ensure that the investing public is given enough time to review the registration statement and to make an informed investment decision. So what for both capital markets lawyers and lawyers who are not involved in capital markets, what's the most important takeaway? You know, the most important takeaway would be that uh, you know, the number of IPOs is decreasing. And the question is, why is that? You know, again, we mentioned earlier that there are a number of factors. You know, a lot of focus, there's been a lot of focus, particularly among uh, lawyers, because because we are lawyers, of, of the regulatory burden. But, uh, you know, the, the market at the end of the day determines how many IPOs there are. 
Uh, you know, there are things like valuations, alternative sources of financing, private equity, venture capital. Uh, those areas have been very strong recently, uh, very high valuations in the private market. Uh, and again, you know, this goes back to the bundle of property rights that you receive when you invest in a security. And it's not just the instrument governing that security. For example, you can have plain vanilla common share that is the common share of a public company versus the common share of a private company. Uh, if someone buys the common share of the public company, they're also receiving the right to go on a stock exchange and sell that share, which provides a lot more liquidity and allows them to divest that share much easier. Uh, whereas if you own that same share and the issuer is a private company, your ability to resell that share is much more restricted. So typically the valuations for private companies were lower than for public companies. Um, but in the last couple of years, private equity, venture capital, these markets have been become very developed and very popular with investors. A lot of funds have been flowing into these areas. So uh, a lot of companies have stayed private longer or just haven't gone public at all because they can receive high valuations in the private market. And really, at the end of the day, one of the primary reasons that you conduct an IPO is to raise capital. And if you can raise capital in the private market just as easily uh, at the same valuation or a slightly reduced valuation, but however, not having to incur all of the costs, et cetera, and the, the problems associated with becoming a public company, you know, many companies choose the private path. Okay. So as we wrap up, Chris, we like to ask all of our guests a question about advice. So you can have three choices. You can either choose to share the best advice you've ever been given, the best advice you wish you had followed but didn't, or the best advice you've ever given someone. Uh, you know, I think uh, I choose the last question. And, you know, I think the best advice I've given my clients in the past when they're contemplating conducting an IPO is they really have to sit down and, you know, with a lot of very experienced advisors, uh, not just lawyers, but uh, the bankers as well, and auditors, uh, because the financial statement process is one of the most complex aspects of an IPO. They really have to sit down and put together a very detailed, drawn-out roadmap of how they're going to conduct the IPO and complete it. And they have to be very well-versed in the obligations that are going to be incurred after the IPO is completed, because I think that can be overlooked. The IPO process itself is very complicated, very drawn out. And I think that sometimes some companies conducting IPOs can uh, lose sight of what they have to do once they become public, which actually the requirements of public companies begin the minute that a company's uh, registration statement goes effective. You know, for a lot of companies, the effective date is almost like is the end of a very long process. Uh, and a lot of the participants in that process are very exhausted, et cetera. But the problem is that the minute you become a, that the registration statement goes effective, a whole new set of issues arise. And the company has to be prepared right away to deal with those in terms of periodic reporting, et cetera, and just making sure that they're well aware of all the requirements of being a public company. Okay. Thank you, Chris. This wraps up another episode of Thompson Reuters Down the Hall with Practical Law. Thank you to our special guest, IPO expert Chris Rorig, who's a senior legal editor in the Capital Markets Group here at Practical Law. To access the IPO Roundup from 2016, as well as other helpful resources, please check out our show page at Legal Talk Network, or you can find it at downthehallwithpracticallaw.com. And please feel free to rate us in iTunes if you like the show. If you have any comments, feedback, or suggestions, you can reach out to us at dthpl at thompsonreuters.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. 
If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find both Thomson Reuters Practical Law and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Thomson Reuters, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.